What's the only weekly wrap-up of the top compliance and ethics stories? It is This Week in FCPA with Tom Fox, the voice of compliance, and Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor. Each week, Tom and Jay highlight 10 stories which caught their collective eye, talk about sports and movies, highlight top podcasts, and preview their upcoming events. Join This Week in FCPA each week for a one-stop review of the week's compliance and ethics highlights. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. In this episode of This Week in FCPA, Jay and I take a look at Ethisphere's announcement of the 2021 World's Most Ethical Company Awards. What will data privacy look like under the Biden administration? What did the National Defense Authorization Act say about profit disgorgement and how the SEC uses it? Why does the serious fraud office in the United Kingdom want companies to invest more in compliance? We take a look at a great case study on board lessons learned from a crisis from the Valley Dam uh, disaster. Dick Casson, a Texas transplant, reflects on weather and lessons learned. We consider the Citibank 100 or excuse me, $900 million erroneous wire transfer and black swan events. On the podcast front, we discuss Natalia Shaheda's fourth and final episode on The Compliance Life, Ronnie Feldman and Ricardo Pelafon on The Compliance Handbook, and Joseph West on Integrity Through Compliance. I know you will enjoy this episode. This Week in FCPA is a production of The Compliance Podcast Network. Ethosphere has announced its world's most ethical company awards for 2021. We are back to look at some of the week's top compliance and ethics stories that caught our collective interest on this week in FCPA. Jay, what say you? Jay says he's happy it's getting warmer in Houston, and I want to hear about this week in FCPA. So, Jay, we're going to start with the um, world's most ethical awards, and as uh, always, uh, great to uh, see those and find that um, uh, the number of companies has uh, increased, of course, and they listed uh, multiple winners of this year's awards. And of course, lost my notes now. They've gone away. Nevertheless, the um, uh this year's awards had some 15-year consecutive award winners, which is always impressive. But the thing that perhaps is the most impressive, Jay, is the uh, ethical premium. And that mm-hmm. is the amount of money that companies who receive the world's most ethical designation uh, make above the standard and poor's 500 uh, average. And this year we had a uh, over 7% premium. So Ethosphere... Um, once again, shows that companies that have best practices compliance programs in place uh, generally do better. And that's obviously something that uh, we um, applaud, but it's something that we're going to uh, take a little bit more deeper dive into. The actual numbers and reports have not been issued yet by Ethosphere, but we'll take a look at those uh, when they come out. You can go to Ethosphere's website, uh, to find out more about the complete list of companies. Uh, Matt Kelly blogged about it in Radical Compliance, and Sarah Haddon also reported on it in uh, CCI. So, Jay, uh, what do you think about data privacy under 
the Biden administration, or more importantly, what does Colin Rahill tell us in Jolt? Well, I'm going to try to channel my uh, Jonathan Armstrong here because we're going to talk about data privacy and cybersecurity. Uh, from the 20th of January onward, the Biden administration has collided headfirst with unprecedented public health, economic, and national security crises, symptoms of the pandemic, which have sparked intense speculation around the new administration's privacy policy. Many observers find reason for hope in the new administration, encouraged by Vice President Harris's strong track record in privacy enforcement and the return of various Obama staffers who contributed to the former president's Consumer Privacy Bill of Rights. The beginning of the Biden administration coincides with a growing push for federal privacy litigation legislation. Numerous privacy protection bills have been introduced to Congress in recent years, and while proposed legislation has thus failed, an April 2020 Congressional Research Service report indicates the bills largely agreed on creating a bundle of digital rights. Progress in state legislation, meanwhile, is moving quickly. By some accounts, it's possible that at least half of the states could adopt data protection laws over the next few years. California has proven itself a leader, and it was during Vice President Harris's tenure as Attorney General that California's Online Privacy Protection Act, CalOPA, the first state requiring require, excuse me, first state law requiring privacy disclosures on commercial websites, was amended to its present stricter form. Inconsistent privacy laws across states, however, is frustrating for both entities within and without the country and has caused legal friction between the U.S. and the EU, complicating cooperative data flow, a problem especially pertinent during the pandemic. Tensions have come to a head this past summer with the Schrems II decision, which violated the privacy shield protection data transfers between the U.S. and EU. Since SHREMS II, transatlantic data transfer has been riskier and costlier with privacy regulations and conflict with the EU's data protection regulation, GDPR, excuse me, GDPR. The Biden administration has also focused its attention beyond Congress towards agencies, specifically the Federal Trade Commission, and pushing for more aggressive enforcement of privacy regulations and antitrust action. The Biden administration's emphasis on enforcement will find strong leadership in Vice President Harris, whose time as the Attorney General of California was marked by substantial legal action in privacy and technology. Early in her tenure, she responded to a series of data breaches by creating the Privacy Enforcement Protection Unit and produced a report entitled Privacy on the Go, Recommendations for the Mobile Ecosystem. Not long after, she managed to get Amazon, Apple, Google, Microsoft, and two other companies to agree to a joint statement of principles. While so many crises competing for attention, many privacy goals will be put on hold during the president's first 100 days. And not all measures discussed in this article may come to fruition. However, it's inevitable that the Biden administration will confront serious cybersecurity threats of terrorism, economic injury, and political sabotage. Travis LeBlanc, a member of the U.S. Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, states that privacy and cybersecurity are inextricably intertwined, accounting to the Cyberspace Solarium Commission. The country is at serious risk for catastrophic cyber attack. 
It is difficult to overstate the gravity of the role the Biden administration now assumes, but there is hope that strong actors in the administration will take action to protect data privacy and safeguard human rights, whether those rights exist in the physical or digital world. Back to you, Tom. So, Jay, um, we had an interesting article by David Leventhal. Uh, writing in the FCPA blog, he is a law student and wrote a, wrote a really excellent article about the part of the National Defense Authorization Act uh, became law January 1 when Congress overrode Trump's veto um, around profit disgorgement. And he really, I thought, in a very commonsensical way uh, uh, articulated that what Congress did was actually to um, confirm the Lew decision extending, but it did extend out the statute of limitations on the SEC's ability to garner profit disgorgement. But the part that he focused on was it didn't change the new calculation that the Supreme Court put in place. And previously, companies had to not disgorge profit, but they had to disgorge all revenue generated by any corrupt act. And uh, you're a I believe you went to a, a technical, perhaps vocational school in Philadelphia for business issues, Jay. Is that is that right? Yeah, um, I went to a, a little place called the Wharton School of Business. That's the one, yeah. Well, at the vocational school you went to, I think they probably had a course around um, what profits consist of, what revenues consist of, and perhaps even the difference between profits and revenues. And uh, Leventhal said that uh, that's the part that was affirmed by this congressional action. So um, uh, I thought it was a great article. It, it really cut through, I think, a lot of the chaff that's been talked about in terms of what Congress intended to do and what they did uh, around profit disgorgement in the Lew Act. But the SEC can go back 10 years and they still have to calculate um, the, uh, the, the difference between uh, what you brought in from your sales and what you kept as profit, so that the costs that you incurred uh, to garner that profit uh, was be properly deducted. So interesting article and uh, uh, kudos uh, for him. Uh, I believe this is his first appearance in the FCPA blog. Excellent. Uh, next up, we one of our uh, stalwarts here, Dylan Tokar at the Wall Street Journal's Risk and Compliance Journal. Uh, the SFO wants companies to invest more in compliance. We take a look at two cases with diverging outcomes that illustrate the value of a strong compliance program, says the director of the Serious Fraud Office, Lisa Ozofsky. The focus on the strength of companies' compliance programs is a new one for the Serious Fraud Office. The emphasis that is placed on it today is significantly stronger than it was when the agency was born in the late 1980s says SFO Director Lisa Arzovsky at a recent Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics conference. Under her leadership, when Lisa joined in 2018, the SFO has offered additional guidance on how it handles corporate cases, including how it evalu evaluates compliance programs. Are they part of the company's DNA, she asked compliance practitioners during her speech. Or do they just adorn a very nice couple of binders that are held on a bookshelf that don't really do much more than provide window dressing? The SFO can credit companies with strong compliance programs by negotiating more lenient settlements with them. She pointed to two recent cases with divergent outcomes that she said showed the SFO's commitment to doing so. 
in July of 2019, the SFO struck a $24 million deal with a subsidiary of a public contractor named Serco Group PLC, and a year later, it reached a similar settlement with a security services company, G4S, for $486.6 million. Both cases involved allegations of fraud in connection with contracts to provide electronic monitoring services to the UK Ministry of Justice. Serco reported misconduct and began cooperating almost immediately with the SFO and was rewarded with faster and less expensive resolution. Mr. Swafsky said the G4S took substantially longer to cooperate and received a smaller discount. The state of each company's compliance program played a role in the outcome, she said. G4S was in a different place in its compliance journey. It hadn't yet embedded and thought through its compliance obligations in a way that Serco could demonstrate it had. In the first for the SFO, the G4S settlement also contained a provision requiring the appointment of a reviewer to ensure the company adheres to its agreement with the agency. Quote, it's the first time we use such a construct to oversight, excuse me, to oversee the compliance development and compliance makers, said Mrs. Zazowski. Under UK law, the arrangement is distinct from the so-called independent monitors used here in the U.S. to ensure compliance with settlement agreements. Building on the principles released last year, the SFO will continue to deepen its understandings of compliance and engagement with compliance professionals. We're upskilling ourselves to be better and smarter in the evaluation, including bringing in people with experience and expertise in this area. Tom? So, Jay, um, the next article we have is around one of the true disasters uh, we've had in the past few years, and that's the Vale uh, mine disaster. Not a mine disaster, but a, a breach of a dam disaster, which killed uh, several hundred people in, in Brazil, at a small town in Brazil. And the um, fallout from that has just been... Uh, quite a bit, reputational damage to Vale, obviously a loss of life by the people uh, who were caught in the mudslide, the cost to Vale uh, in all areas. Um, but what we had was an article in the Harvard uh, Law School Forum on Corporate Governance by Stephen Davis and Sandra Guerra. Guerra. And Davis is a professor at Harvard, and Guerra is actually a board member at Vale. And I would really urge every compliance practitioner to link, uh, we've linked to this article, of course, in the show notes, but to actually read the article because they go through an extended Q&A to talk about what happened to Vale, what their response was from the board level. And it gives a lot of insight of, of what the emotional toil or uh, cost was to the company and particularly at the board level. And it really humanizes a major uh, disaster. But there were some um, interesting uh, comments at near the end of the piece about what are the real lessons learned. And uh, they basically come down to have a crisis management plan in place, uh, train on that crisis management plan. But Guerra made clear that um, it's, it's more than that because when the ultimate disaster hits like this uh, this disaster, what, as much as you have prepared is not going to prepare you for this. So that you have to be ready. The, the preparation part gives you a process to think through uh, the steps you'll take. 
but uh, you have to respond quickly at the board level. You have to have independent board members who can put a very jaundiced eye on management, and you have to investigate uh, as well. But the key that I had not really seen before was she has led an effort from the board level to engage with shareholders and other stakeholders of the company, but her, her remit is really shareholders. And so they've had lots of conversations with shareholders after the accident. The insight for me was start those conversations before a crisis occurs. Know who your key shareholders are and meet with them routinely. Answer difficult questions about, are you prepared for X? Obviously, if you're in Texas, are you prepared for a, a, what we would say is a cold snap, even if that cold snap is somewhere near zero for the first time in nearly 150 years? So engage with your shareholders, know who your key shareholders are, develop relationships with your shareholders. And for the compliance officers out there, you would you might think about this uh, from your perspective as a CCO, <coughs> developing a relationship with the board, uh, board committees who handle compliance, whether it be the audit committee or the compliance committee. But if you're on the audit committee, if you're on the compliance committee, develop relationships with key shareholders and have a plan that in addition to your crisis response, you'll communicate with your shareholders because she said the biggest loss was the loss of trust. And obviously with, with a wide variety of stakeholders and the company's working very hard to win that trust back. But if you have a relationship with your key shareholders, it's easier to engage in those conversations if the ultimate disaster occurs. Uh, Jay, I don't know if you knew, but Dick Casson has uh, relocated to the great state of Texas, and he's what we would call here a transplant. And he had some, uh, I thought, prescient observations about our recent cold snap. What did you see in his article in the FCPA blog? Thanks, Tom. So uh, living through a large-scale catastrophic event can often bring on reflective thought and self-assessment. In anticipation of the next unprecedented force majeure, which seems to be happening a lot lately, here are a few things that were in Dick Casson's mind. First up, imagine your worst case scenario and plan for it. The freeze in Texas was described as a 100-year event. A 100-year event is improbable, or so you'd think, especially if something similar happened 10 years ago. Well, still planning for 100-year events makes sense. Why? Because it's an unlikely event that the 100-year event happens, you need a plan, and you really need a plan. More importantly, knowing you have a plan when all the wheels are coming off gives you confidence. Confidence is a form of hope, and even a sliver of hope can make things look bleak is better than none. That alone is a reason enough to make a plan for the 100-year event. Second, there is no bad situation that can't be made worse. There were so many stories last week about desperate people who made tragic choices. Some misjudge how quickly the road conditions would deteriorate, in a plowless Texas, others brought their camp stoves indoor to keep warm or boil water, unfortunately with deadly consequences. Most emergencies require fast action, but some don't. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes doing nothing and staying put might be the best plan of action. Number three, anger doesn't help. A few times during last week's freeze, Dick took the weather and resulting chaos personally. That started an internal dialogue of complaints, and then he realized, or rather, smarter loved ones reminded him that taking a weather event personally is ridiculous. Of course it is. The havoc in Texas victimized tens of millions of people, 
personalizing things felt like the first step towards rash and act toward rash action. On the other hand, when he remembered he was in it with everyone else, that instilled more patience than he had thought. Well, those are three things that Dick will try to remember for the next 100-year event. It's probably coming soon because another thing he learned last week is that 2021 is turning out to be a lot like 2020, only worse. Well, that's certainly comforting, Jay. Um, (laughs) Jay, I took a look this week at Citibank and their $900 million FUBAR where they um, erroneously wired out $900 million to creditors of Revlon. A court court opinion was issued on this, and it was one of the most delicious court opinions I've read in quite some time. If you're a lawyer geek, which uh, I guess I'm always going to be a lawyer geek, um, as much as I try to to be the voice of compliance and the compliance evangelist, it was a great opinion. But more importantly for the compliance practitioner, the opinion went into excruciating detail on how this mistake occurred. This was not a fat finger mistake. Somebody hit the wrong calculation. This was a system error. This was a process error. And City tried to claim, uh, at, uh, first of all, I learned that uh, finders keepers um, is pretty good law. And uh, there's actually legal principles on that. So uh, that was kind of, I was not really prepared to understand that uh, something I'd learned at age three was actually good law. But beyond that, uh, the errors that Citibank sustained, which allowed this to happen, when I went through those, Jay, what I realized was that this event was foreseeable. And if something's foreseeable, you can plan for it and you plan to have controls around it. The foreseeability was, although this was an extraordinarily complicated transaction and the uh, solution to the transaction or the result of the transaction would be uh, to wire money in, in a particularly difficult way with their software system, it had been done before and it could be done. It could be done by executing a series of commands to the software. For reasons completely unclear and not reported in the opinion, those steps were not taken. But those steps were in the software documentation, and they had been uh, the Citibank employees had been trained on that. So a mistake was made. And when you uh, have an event, even a nine hundred million dollar FUBAR event, uh, it's it's just a matter of scale. Uh, I think all of us have, have incorrectly sent money, or a bank has incorrectly wired money. The court said that perhaps not ever this much, but it's only a matter of scale. So Matt and I took a look at this this week on Compliance Into the Weeds, and Matt really advocated a process control. I uh, articulated a transaction control. But whichever way you go, uh, the the answer is uh, when you do something outside the ordinary, you need to have additional controls around that. And from I thought that was a great lesson from the compliance perspective. Uh, So the kind of three top lessons I had from this case were have a control for an exception, whatever that exception might be, train employees what to do correctly for the exception. And number three is if something is so complex that no one knows how to do it, it's too complex. And you have to simplify it down in some way. So lots of lessons. If you're a lawyer out there listening to this, um, uh, read the opinion. It's it's just delicious. And the legal principle of discharge for value 
was articulated in the restatement of contracts uh, 1937. So that's how far back the legal principle goes, and you'll you will enjoy that as well. But a very interesting end to, or I shouldn't say end, because Citibank will appeal this, very interesting step in this whole process for Citibank. Uh, unfortunately, some tough lessons for them, but some, I think, important lessons for the compliance practitioner as well. So, Tom, we're in the final week of February. Could you tell us what you spoke about this week on part four of the compliance life? So, uh, as as you know, Jay, we've been talking to Natalia Shadheda all month in the compliance life. And uh, this episode, Natalia looked at what she thinks uh, compliance will be in the veiled land of the future, 2025 and beyond. She talked about some of the skills a compliance professional will need, some of the talents and disciplines which a corporate compliance function will need. Uh, One theme throughout this podcast series with Natalia has been her just love of compliance. She is so enthusiastic. She is so passionate about this. Uh, She rivals the compliance evangelist in passion for compliance. And that really comes through in this episode. So, Uh, Take a listen to this episode. Uh, We also had uh, another delicious episode in the Compliance Handbook podcast series with uh, our good friends, Ronnie Feldman and Ricardo uh, Pelafon on uh, training and communications. And I think it would be fair, and they would agree with the assessment that they are two of the most unique characters in compliance. And they have a very different view uh, they didn't go to a Wharton School of Business. They don't have law degrees. Well, I guess Ricardo does, but he doesn't seem to uh, utilize that very much uh, in their communications. Uh, but Ricardo uh, really advocates a visual style of communication. He's well-known for his graphics from his company, Broadcat. Of course, Ronnie at Learnings and Entertainment is the master at using humor and comedy to help train uh which is what seconds, excuse me, which learning and entertainment does. Ronnie came out of Second City. Uh, so uh, they have some really unique views on how to make training not just fun, but effective. And that's what the DOJ wants. And if you can have two guys like that helping you make your training and comms effective, you're halfway uh, down the road to success for your compliance program. So check that out. Jay, we had a, uh, uh, you had, or your colleagues, uh, who are doing integrity through compliance, have a new uh, podcast up this week. You want to tell us uh, about that? Sure. Uh, I'd like to catch you up that uh, AMI's expert observations and guidance are related in ethics, antitrust, healthcare, government, consumer protection, and more. And we've already, we're already up to our third episode, which is also can be found in the Compliance Podcast Network. An episode of one AMI's founder, Vin Siani visited with our managing director, Jerry Coyne, and they contemplated the future of telehealth and home health care. Two weeks ago, uh, Brenda Morris and Dion Lomax, managing directors with the company, spoke with Jennifer Newton, who's the CEO and founder of the National Association of Black Compliance and Risk Management Professionals. And yesterday, we just had an outstanding podcast with Joseph K. West, who's a partner in Chief Diversity and Inclusion Office at the law firm Dwayne Morris. So all those uh, episodes can be either found at the affiliated monitors website or also on the Compliance Podcast Network. Uh, what's the big podcasting event you have coming up, Tom? 
So, Jay, I have been going to PodFast Expos events for several years now. That, in my mind, it's the best podcast for the independent podcaster. And if you're interested in podcasting at all, you have to check out this one-week-long event. Um, Chris Krimatos, uh, the founder of PodFast Expo, uh, led a, a virtual conference last August that set the all-time Guinness Book of Records for online conferences at 5,004 people. He's aiming to, to blast that away, much in the, uh, in the spirit of Joe DiMaggio and his 56-game hitting streak, so that no one ever pa- surpasses it. So we got that going on. But more importantly, the sessions are just absolutely great, from storytelling to production to microphones to how to produce a podcast, to how to think about a podcast, uh, Megan Doherty and I from one, uh, Stone Creative are talking about business podcasts, what you need in that. Um, it, it has got a little for something for everyone. Best of all, it's free. And it's free because Chris has great sponsors. And I've got a link uh, in the show notes that if you use the code CPN, Compliance Podcast Network, for those in the know, uh, you can get a free pass. So uh, go to the site, check it out. There is a ton and a half of information available. The resources are just fabulous. And if you're interested in podcasting at all, this is the event for you. So, Tom, earlier you spoke about the Compliance Handbook. I think we have another offer for our listeners to take advantage of. What's that? So the Compliance Handbook will be published in uh, April by LexisNexis. Extraordinarily thrilled about that. And more importantly, it's available for pre-sale now. I've linked to the uh, Lexus uh, uh, bookstore where it's available. And best of all, listeners to this podcast can get a uh, discount of up to 25%. I've got the code FOX25, very clever by LexisNexis there. So uh, check that out. And uh, the Compliance Handbook second edition will be a great resource for you. It, of course, incorporates the latest DOJs, commentary in the original 2019 Evaluation of Corporate Compliance Programs, the 2020 Update, the FCPA Resource Guide, second edition released in July of 2020, as well as updates to the FCPA Corporate Enforcement Program announced uh, throughout uh, 2018 and 2019. So uh, a lot has happened since the book was originally published, and it is still, in my humble opinion, the best single-volume resource for the design uh, creation and implementation of a best practice compliance program. So uh, you would definitely help Mrs. Fox uh, and her struggles if you will uh, buy the book and you would make me very happy as well. Well, I don't, I don't know how to top that, Tom, but um, sh- whether you watch us on Restream or LinkedIn or uh, the FCPA compliance report, if you'd like to get in touch with us, Tom can be reached at tfox at tfoxlaw.com, and I can be reached at the initial J, Rosen, at affiliatedmonitors.com. So on behalf of Tom Fox, um, the voice of compliance, and myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this week in FCPA, episode 241, for the week ending February 26, 2021, the world's most ethical edition. We thank you for spending your time with us, and we hope that you and yours are safe, healthy, and we will speak to you in the next week. Take care. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of This Week in FCPA. 
I'd like you to check out the new Affiliated Monitors podcast. We'll be up on the Compliance Podcast Network very soon. It's going to be uh, some great content from our good friends at Affiliated Monitors, including my This Week in FCPA co-host, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitors himself. You can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. You can reach me at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join us each Thursday at 4 p.m. Central on LinkedIn or Facebook, where we live stream This Week in FCPA. This Week in FCPA is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network and a proud member of C-Suite Radio. Thanks so much for listening. We look forward to visiting with you again next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.